So what I want to do is um, ask you to help me greet David Butler with the North American Mission Board. Thank you. Well, as I said in the first service, it is always uh, an honor and a privilege to get to be here at Mount Airy. So good morning. And uh, I am so sorry about Keith and I. Sorry, I'm not going to get to spend time with him. I have such a huge, huge love and respect for him. We've become friends through missions over the last five or six years, but it went beyond just a partner church. It became a trusted friend and a co-laborer, and I just have so much appreciation for him. He's almost, almost persuaded me to like Pepsi, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I just so enjoy him and being with him. Uh, I have uh, always thought of Mount Airy whenever I think about Boston, the two go together because of your investment there. And what God is doing through you, through Charles, through Christ Church Charlestown is absolutely amazing. There are some works, uh, things that work right now that nobody can explain except the hand of God. And you are right there on the front line with it. So I just want to say thank you your huge investment, your love, your prayer, your support for J.D. and Natalie, boys, and a number of people who are uh, being drawn to Christ through that very life-giving witness and that life-giving church. And I know you're going to be hearing much more about way, the ways that God are, uh, is working right now. Now, uh, I've had the privilege for the last seven years of serving as the Sin City Missionary for uh, Boston, for greater Boston, 5.8 million people, the city itself, about 600 plus thousand. And the church planning map back in 2005, you would have found two churches uh, on that church planning map on our, uh, from our tribe. Today, there are 84. So God is powerfully at work. And, uh, and I, I realize that it, when I say that for you, um, it, it's exciting for us. It's like we're just getting started um, because we still have so, so many places to go where there's not a life-giving church. As I've been in this area for the last couple, three days, having been at Anderson University for a conference and at their chapel on Friday, um, there are churches everywhere you turn. There are churches every, everywhere you look. And, and that's a great thing. Uh, to see God just at work in so many different places and venues, and certainly right here in a very powerful way at Mount Airy. But I think about if you were to drive through Boston, you would see church buildings, but they'd be empty. Or maybe 10 or 15 people surviving on an endowment or having been sold and turned into condominiums. And so we're seeing what we believe could be a movement of God in our city and beyond. And we're praying that someday there won't be 84 churches. There'll be 300 life-giving churches all across Boston whenever Boston turns 400 in the year 2030. They have some great leadership. I transitioned out as the Sin City missionary back in uh, last year, about a year ago now. Stayed on as the church planning leader for all of New England. And then I started moving towards uh, the next season. And they asked, hey, would you stay around for a while and service in a part-time way, and I am certainly uh, was excited to be able to do that and say, yes, so we're still in Boston a week, a month, my wife and I, serving alongside the great team there, Aaron, um, Kevin, and others. And then I also serve now as a coach 
national coach for other Sin City missionaries in one of our 34 Sin Cities. So it's a real privilege. But I have moved to, to Huntsville, Alabama, where our daughter Amy and her three children and husband live. And so we commute from there. So instead of flying from Boston here, I drove. So it's a little bit of a difference. But it's such an honor to get to be here. Now let me set the message up this way. Uh, we're living in a, as you well know, unprecedented time. In fact, what if you had a dime for every time you heard the word unprecedented over the last two plus years? You'd be a wealthy person, wouldn't you? But what is so, uh, I think, unsettling is that so many people are very confused. Uh, they're not for sure who to believe, what to believe, when to believe, how to believe. And unfortunately, that has carried over into a lot of the perceptions, and I would even go so far as to say as distortions of what it means to be a, a Christian, to be a Christ follower. Uh, story after story, news article after news article, um, in both Christian publications as well as in the secular media, there is this very apparent drift, if not drift, it's just a, a quick slide away from a positive view of Christianity to somewhat of a very skeptical and negative view. And that is working against everything that we believe is our mission. And that's to make Christ known and to share His love and His grace. And to see lostness push back. And to see more and more lives transformed. A part of the challenge with all of that is we're still on mission but there's a real important question we better start addressing and better start taking a look at if we're going to be effective in that mission. And that's in our city, it's in your city, it's in the South, it's in every region of our nation. And that question is, again, what does it really mean, look like, to be a Christ follower? And we're going to take a cue this morning from an ancient letter that was written to a new community of Christ followers. And Paul was the one who wrote it. He was a man whose own life was transformed by the gospel, who once upon a time was a Christ hater, was encountered by the living Jesus, life transformed and spent the rest of his life literally giving it away to plant churches everywhere for everyone. Now, he writes this to a church that he didn't help start. A friend did. But they're all brand new Christ followers. And he says, I've got to help them be spiritually formed, understand what it means for it to give their life to Christ, to what a spiritually formed look, life looks like, what Christ in their life looks like. So he writes this ancient letter called Colossians, and it's an ancient letter that talks about extreme devotion to Christ. It's a great discipleship, spiritual formation manual, so to speak. There's nothing in it that's corrective as much as it is instructive. And it gives us a great understanding of what a fully formed Christ follower looks like. And with all due respect, that's what our world is so confused about. What does a person who claims the name of Jesus, who is a follower of Jesus, what does that person look like? What does that mean? So again... We're going to be looking there, and we'll start in just a moment in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, but I want to pray first, and then we'll jump right into the message. 
Father, it is uh, just an un- incredible joy and, uh, to be here and to be among friends and more than friends, partners. Um, and Father, over the North American Mission Board and through the North American Mission Board, uh, churches are being planted. But Father, we don't plant churches. Churches plant churches. And because of Mount Airy's investment, there's a life-giving church in the heart of Boston's Otis neighborhood. And I just praise you and thank you for the work you've done through this, this wonderful family. And I thank you, Father, for the fact that that mission continues. Their heart is all about it. Whether it be here in the low country or across the, the oceans or uh, up the east coast all the way into to Boston. Thank you, Father, for moments like this, sacred moments to where we not just hear a, a speaker's voice, but we hear your voice. And it is my greatest desire, Father, this morning that we would leave all of us, not a single one of us left out of this, transformed by an encounter with you and through your word. Thank you that we have this message from Paul, this ancient letter, preserved, perfect in every way, reliable. Help us to lean in and listen to it and hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Twelve years ago, my family, at that particular point in time, our family was just my wife and I. We moved from uh, the the metropolitan area of Louisville, Kentucky, where we had lived for 21 years, had planted a church. And God called us uh, in just his providential way to conquer New Hampshire. We went to the state capital, a state of one million from a city of one million. Now, that was quite a transition, and for a lot of ways, we left our kids and grandkids behind, and we moved up to Concord, New Hampshire, to a church that was almost 200 years old after having planted a church and been the founding pastor for 21 years. So we went from a lot of different yin and yang kind of experiences. Now, getting acclimated to the culture was something that we had to to get up to speed on pretty quick. Um, I, I remember when I first arrived to meet with some of the leaders in January, of uh, 2009, while I was there, um, <laughs> I arrived in my very, uh, uh, very uh, lightly linen uh, dress pants, gray slacks, and I had on uh, my very stylish leather coat. Um, I had on a pair of tasseled loafers, and I uh, arrived. And at that particular time, when I met them, I got off the plane, and I realized, you know, it's a little colder here than it is in Louisville, Kentucky. In fact, it was minus 11 that day. I, I met with them, and it, I shivered all the way through the, the conversation, and they looked at me with, uh, that's going to have to change. Um, and sure enough, it did. And I, it, it wasn't just that, but as we would go to various uh, uh, establishments and retail outlets and restaurants throughout the community, meet people, one of the first things that they would say because I'm a son of the South, they would say, you're not from around here, are you? And uh, we'd say, no. And, and I remember one in particular event, we went to a local KFC. We were just in and out real quick. And so we ran in and the, the woman heard us and she said, you're not from around here, are you? And they, she said, so where are you from? And we said, well, we're from Louisville, Kentucky. And she leaned over the counter and she said, oh, you have shoes on. And uh, it's just that kind of an experience that, but it endeared us to the community. We absolutely loved it. In fact, I will just tell you this. Uh, even though we're a son of the South and we're now live with our kids and love being closer to our grandkids, 
I, uh, I would have to tell you this. I absolutely loved New England. I absolutely, and then ultimately we moved from Concord into Boston. I love Boston. I am a wannabe New Englander, even though I will never be a New Englander. You have to be born there to be a New Englander. If you're not born there, you're a wash ashore. And so it's just, uh, just that kind of a way. But I will tell you, transformation did take place. I, trained, uh, I traded in those tasseled loafers for a pair of kings and Merrill's. I chained uh, those uh, lightly beautiful, I thought, uh, good-looking uh, leather jacket, stylish jacket. I traded in for a North Face. Uh, I, I traded in my, my very nice dress socks in for a pair of smart wool. I traded in my, uh, my very nice, I thought, a pair of linen slacks. I, I traded them in for a pair of corduroys. I acclimated pretty quick. Uh, and I became a New Englander, so to speak, by my dress. I started thinking about that as I was preparing for this message. And the idea was I was transformed, as it were. And my heart, even though I'm a son of the South and acclimated to the South, suddenly I became acclimated and I began to develop certain habits that they developed. And I began to become like them, genuinely so, even though, quote-unquote, that was all a brand new experience for me. I think of that in the same way when I start thinking about a person who says yes to Christ. And I'm sure in their mind they're saying, I, I, I'm, I, this is the decision. I came to a, a crisis of belief. I said yes to the gospel. I understood that Christ died for my sin. He rose again. I confess with my mouth. I believed in my heart. Jesus is in my life. The challenge with that a lot of times is that from that point on, it gets a little bit confusing sometimes. And too often, and I'm not, this is not an accusation as much as it is just a trend and a drift in our thinking sometimes, we disciple our people towards something that is really not what a Christ follower life is all about. And the Christian life becomes accessory to our life instead of a transforming part of our life. You see, a lot of times when we start thinking about what it means to be a Christ follower, we say we've well, got to believe a certain set of beliefs and doctrine. Absolutely right, essential, pivotal, absolutely important, vital. But that's not what it means to be a Christ follower. And then we come along and we add to that and say, you have to adopt a certain worldview outlook. We call it a biblical worldview, and this is how you make your decisions in life based upon that worldview. Again, absolutely essential, vital, important. But that's not enough. What we need to do, when I say need to do, it's what we need to move towards is an understanding that having Christ in your life is not enough. Not enough. Because you see, having Christ in your life is not what it means to be a Christ follower. It is Christ becoming your life. And that is not so much us looking at the life of Jesus and saying, I want to be like Jesus. No, because we know we've tried that and it fails. We can never be like Jesus. What it means, though, is that Christ who came into our life begins to transform our life to where our life is consumed by Him and His life becomes our life. And it is the overflow of who we are. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, because I think that's why the world's so confused. They think Christianity and Christ followers are about people who have a certain set of beliefs, 
who have a certain worldview. And that's why they're confused. Essential, important, vital, yes, but not enough. What's important is that Christ consumes our life. In fact, let me go so far as to say it this way. Please listen in for just a second. If Christ doesn't become our life, and there's not an intimacy so much so that the beauty and radiance of all He is doesn't overflow out of us, it doesn't matter what we believe or how moral we may be, we will be a danger to the mission. Because it is all about His life becoming our life. That's why a conversation this morning is more than hopefully just a message. I want to take you through a series of questions that will hopefully not create a sense of I'm not there yet as much as I want to be there. I want to be there. So let me ask you a question, just the first of many. Is there a gap between the vision God has for your life, Christ becoming your life, and the person you are in reality? That's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Yeah, yeah, there's a gap. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about closing that gap this morning. Now, uh, I know you have a program, and on the back of it, there's a place for taking message notes. So I'm going to invite you to just along one side of that uh, column, a side of that uh, part of the program, just to make a list, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all the way down, just write down ten. And we're going to go through an assessment this morning, and I, I promise you it's not an assessment to arouse guilt, but to stir up within you that says, that's where I want to head, to close the gap. Now, before we start the pop quiz, so to speak, these ten questions I'm going to ask you. And by the way, I'm going to ask you about you, not you about somebody else. So as we're making our way through this, don't be thinking, yeah, that, that another person come to mind. This is about you. Draw a circle, you get in, it's you. All right? Now, before we begin, let's, let's just let you answer a question, fill in the blank. Not a question, but a fill in the blank. How would you fill in this blank? I'm in a state of blank spiritual growth. I'm in a state of, right now, my current reality when it comes to spiritual growth. This is what it is. Would you use the word? And I'm going to offer some suggestions. You can put your own word there. Um, rapid spiritual growth. You just can't get enough of God. There's a desire in your heart. You're passionate in pursuit of Him. Your yes is on the table, and you don't care where He puts it on the map. You're just yes, yes, and yes again. Rapid spiritual growth. Or would it be good? Would you say, I'm in a good place. I like what God's doing in my life. There's a peace in my heart. I'm pleased with life. I'm good. I'm good with Jesus. Nothing radical. I'm real comfortable. I like the way things are. Would you put the word flatline? Christ is in my life. I know that. I've got, you know, pretty good things going on in my life. But as far as having any real fresh encounters with Jesus, where my life is just kind of brought to a whole new different place in terms of my relationship to Christ, uh, not a whole lot has been happening for maybe for a long time. I'm stuck. Or would you put this one in? And I'm afraid this is where way too many people are gravitating towards in our culture and our time, even within 
the community of Christ followers. I'm very frustrated. I'm tired. I have no real desire to read the scriptures, be with other believers. I'm going through the routine. I'm not quitting on God or Jesus. I'm just tired. I'm struggling. I just don't know if I uh, want to keep doing this. You keep kind of punching, checking all the checklists, but there's nothing deep down in your heart except this cynical belief. Where are you? How would you put a word there for you? I'm in a state of. Now let me just pause here before we jump into these questions. I know you're anxious to get into them. Um, Moving towards maturity, closing that gap as a Christ follower, that shouldn't be something that happens to a few people or only happens on an occasion. It should be the norm. It should be the norm of who who we are in Christ, Him and His life becoming ours. It should be the norm, not the exception. Second, moving towards maturity is a journey, not a destination. You're never going to arrive to where that gap between who God has called you to be and created you to be in Christ and His life becoming your life until you go home to be with Jesus, our Jesus comes. But He sure wants you to be moving in that direction and closing the gap. Third thing is, moving towards maturity is really not optional. It's it's about closing the gap, as I just said. Now, with all that in mind, let's drop into this ancient letter in Colossians chapter 1. Now, we pause for a second. Are you ready to walk through this spiritual assessment of where you are this morning? Are you, are you ready for me to get through the 10 questions and then move on? I really want to invite you to dive into these questions. There's so much at stake. I happen to be in chapel at Anderson University on Friday. Powerful message from one of the professors, Dr. Channing Chrysler, I think is his name, or Chrysler. And when he challenged the students, about 700 students in that chapel, what do you think it means to live a life of godliness? And as he walked through the message, beautifully presented and shared, he said, a life of godliness is not a virtue, it's not a task, it's not a disposition, it's a person, it's Jesus. What he was trying to say to them, it's about Jesus consuming your life. Godliness is not about a virtue. It's not about a task. It's not about a disposition. It's about Christ becoming your life. Those students need to hear that. Guess what? You and I need to hear that. So that's why we're going to walk through this ancient letter together. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 24. Here's what he says. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh... What is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul is saying, I want you to understand that I'm willing to pay any kind of cost, not necessarily just to die a martyr's death, but to live a martyr's life, so you can experience the fullness in all that God has for you in Christ, and for Christ to become your life. If you want to know what it is that energizes the pastor, 
what it is that agonizes a pastor. What is it that causes a pastor to stay awake at night? Paul echoes it in other letters. He says, I struggle in my own spirit. I have a heavy concern until Christ is formed in you. Until he becomes your life. He says, I have become the church's servant. Verse 25. By the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. I'm to leverage all of my gifts, my time to describe, to show you how to live the Jesus life. What is that? To show you the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, what is now disclosed to the Lord's people. It's been an unknown, it's been a mysterion, it's been a secret, so to speak, never been fully grasped. But now, here's what it is, verse 27, here's the secret, we're making it known. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, that would be us, those far away from God, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the confident expectation of seeing his life put on visible display in your life, the radiance and beauty of all that Jesus is. He said, that's what I'm all about. And that's what this letter is all about. Christ in you. That's his preferred future for you. Follow me here for just a second. What is he saying? All of God is in Christ. His fullness, his attributes, and everything else is in Christ. When you say yes to Christ, he comes to live within you by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So when you invite Christ to come to your life, what are you doing? All the fullness of God in the person of Jesus, by the empowering presence of Jesus, dwells within you. Within you, within me. So this isn't about you trying to be like Jesus. No, Jesus is in your life. It's his life being released through your life. That, he says, that's what we're all about. Now the question becomes, all right, I get that. What does that kind of life look like? Paul then begins to write the rest of the letter of extreme devotion. Here's what it looks like. Let's look at it in Colossians chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me get right to the essence of this message and put it in a statement. How can you tell when Christ has become your life? How can you tell when you're closing the gap? How can you tell when you're growing spiritually and maturity is happening? You're maturing as a Christ follower. How can you tell? Here it is. Not what you believe. It's not your worldview. You can debate, know, understand. Here it is. The acid test of spiritual maturity that you're growing, that the gap is closing, that you're really, Christ has become your life. Here it is. It's how you relate to others. You can't be right with God this way and not right with people this way. If Christ is becoming your life, then it's going to have obvious connotations and implications in the way that you relate to the other. When you start using the word righteousness, it means being right with God, right with yourself, and right with others. That's the way it flows. And that's what Paul focuses on. He definitely tells you in Colossians chapter 3, he writes and says, these are the things that don't need to be a part of your life. But then he says, here's what needs to be embedded in your life. And he uses the phrase in Colossians chapter 3, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, that means God says, I want you 
Holy, that means I claim you as my own. I'm going to make you into my likeness. And dearly loved, I'm crazy about you. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothed, not just simply put on you, but let it become your identity, not fake or pseudo, but deeply embedded into your very fiber of everything that you are. Clothe yourselves, and then he goes through this list. Now we're going to walk through the questions. He says, clothe yourselves with compassion. Compassion, what does that mean? It means to have an attentive awareness of the people around you and a sensitivity towards them that you begin to move toward them in such a way that they know you are there for them. You notice, you care, you listen. Clothe yourself with what? Compassion. So question number one is this. How sensitive are you to the needs of those around you? How other-minded are you in terms of there's this person here, maybe I encounter at the bank, or maybe it's this person that I see in the line at school every day, or it's this person that I see across the way as my neighbor. How aware are you uh, and sensitive are you to the needs of those that God has brought into your life? That's question number one. Clothe yourselves with compassion. Second, clothe yourselves, he says, with kindness. Kindness takes it a little bit further. He says you go beyond just being aware of it and noticing people and listening to the people and caring for the people. You take the step of actually get involved. The word there literally means to get your hands dirty. It means to take the sting out. It's the word we use for mercy, our relief. It means that whenever you see somebody's life being torn apart, you take their part. It means you get down into the craziness and pain of their life. It means you leverage everything that God has given you by His grace, and you leverage your privilege, you leverage it to alleviate the suffering of others as an expression of God's love, kindness, mercy, and tenderness. So the question here, do you bring grief or relief into the lives of others? Do you add to the hurt or do you take the sting out? Clothe yourselves with compassion. Clothe yourself with kindness. Clothe yourself with humility. I like C.S. Lewis's definition. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Now that's not necessarily what this particular meaning of humility is all about. But he's talking about is there a an understanding, a disposition, an acknowledgement, an honesty, a vulnerability about your own proneness towards sinfulness and your own proneness towards having a messy life. We typically think about people who have messy lives as being somebody other than us. And I don't mean to be unkind, but everybody in this room has a messy life. There's not a person here who doesn't have some area of brokenness in your world. Everyone. For those of us who are Christ followers, there's this awareness about our own selves and our own sinfulness. There's no pretentious goodness. There's no unrighteous, unrighteous righteousness. 
we don't have it together and we acknowledge that and there's a humility about us that says I need the grace of Jesus every day of my life. Humility. There's an authenticity. There's no reluctance in an appropriate way to say I own it. That's true about me. Here's the question. How often do you evaluate your life in view of God's holiness and your sinfulness? How often do you say with the psalmist David, search my heart, O God, and help me to see if there's anything in my life that that is against your will and your purpose. Have I hurt, harmed anybody? Have I stepped across a line? God, I'm acknowledging before you that I'm a, that a, a, a sinner saved by grace, loved by you, but God, help me to see those areas of my life where you need to continue to transform me. Gentleness, he says. Clothe yourself with gentleness. Gentleness it is, is a, a word that's often misunderstood. It's not about weakness, but it's about holding your emotions in control in such a way that instead of moving towards a person who has done something that's just kind of aroused your attention and maybe even emotion of anger or displeasure towards them, instead of moving toward them in a crushing manner, in a judgmental, harsh way, instead you are tender, not judgmental. And you take a step back and you say, before I start assessing and uh, using words that are harsh towards them or talking about them in a manner that's harsh in the presence of others and crushing them. No, I'm going to stop and I'm going to think, wait a second, I'm going to hold that back. I'm going to begin asking myself, well, maybe they're going through a hard time that I don't know anything about. Maybe something's happening in their life that that has caused a real disruption in their life and I don't know anything about. I've had occasions where I've been, as it were, kind of treated rudely by somebody on the other side of a counter and there's everything in me wanting to say, hey, look, how about doing your job in such a way that makes me feel important? That you really care that I'm here? And then in that moment, there's that sense of, wait a minute, Jesus is here. He wants to be present through you. And gentleness is released. And all of a sudden, there's a conversation. And in that conversation, I find out that that morning, her husband walked out the door. See what Jesus is getting at? You see what Paul's writing about? Here's the question. How do you respond to irritating situations? Maybe I better ask, how many of you are glad you came this morning? Aren't you glad that you love these questions? It says, clothe yourselves. Has you gone through a good list so far? Are there more? Yes. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. How about patience? The patience here is about a long-suffering relationship, a long-suffering commitment. Instead of walking away from a person who has disappointed you, a situation that it continually doesn't seem to turn out the way that you think it's supposed to turn out, instead of getting discouraged by it and quitting on it, you never, watch this, you just refuse to say, I'm done with you, because Jesus would never say that. So here's the question. How willing are, 
How willing are you to go the extra mile and then some when under pressure, when you're wanting to get out from underneath a situation or a relationship, and you're wanting to get as far away from it as you can? You want to say, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. If we're closing the gap, we're never going to say, I'm done. Let's go a bit further. <laughs> Forbearance. They just keep piling up. Forbearance. That's so hard, I'll be honest with you. You know what forbearance does? It means you deliberately invite people into your life that are sandpaper people. People you don't want to be around. People you avoid. People you do everything you can not to be with. You say, wait a second, there's forbearance here. That means you bring them into your world, into your life. You bear with each other. You forgive another He has a grievance against one another. You forgive as the Lord forgave you. (laughs) So how do you deal with terribly irritating people? How do you deal with terribly difficult people? Do you have any of those in your life? Does Jesus come out of you when you're around them? Forbearance. And then he almost kind of pauses here and he says, verse 14, And over all of these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Love is what brings all this together. And this is where all of us have to push back for a moment. I don't know about you, but I'm going to push back on on Paul here for a second. Paul, wait a second. We can't do this. We can't live like this. But Paul would probably take us back, not just to hear the Colossians, but he'd take us to his place in Romans chapter 8. Where he says that when you invited Christ to give your life, that the love of Christ was shed abroad in our hearts by his spirit. It flooded our hearts. I can't, no, I can't do any of this. But there's a capacity, his love within me, unleashed, can be full of compassion and humility and forbearance and forgiveness and kindness and patience. His love, no, not mine, I don't have that kind of capacity. I like the way Andy Stanley says it, and this is where way too many of us maybe just kind of stop. We love the golden rule. Do unto others as they've done unto you. Andy says, hey, why don't we go to the platinum rule? The platinum rule says, let's love other people in the way that God has loved us. We can't love like that unless God's love is unleashed through us. And there's a submission to His Holy Spirit. Well, let's finish up. It says, clothe yourself with peace. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Have the last word, umpire. Let the peace of God, Christ, rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and to be thankful. Peace means held together instead of fractious. When he's talking about peace here, clothing yourself with peace, he's saying, when you're present, you bring a calmness instead of a sense of tension. Calmness rather than fueling tension in the moment. So, question. Do your actions create or help resolve conflict? When Jesus is present in your life, flowing out of your life, as your life, He'll bring a sense of His calmness that will hold things together instead of creating a tension that's unhealthy.
and fractious in relationships with others. And then he goes on into verse 16. Still with me? Just two more questions, I promise. All right? Here they are, verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. A lot of times when we experience moments like this or even in our own private worship, maybe sometimes it's more of a, just kind of a, 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 a dull habit. Sometimes it's more like a tradition that we go through. But what he's talking about here is, is when, whenever I'm at work in your life and becoming your life, your worship is going to be transformative. And whenever people are around you, they're going to look at your life and what comes out of you is going to cause them to give praise to God because they see Him at work in your life. So here's the question. Is your worship beneficial to others? Because of what you're going to experience here today, your praise, your adoration, you're taking His Word to heart, whether it be my Word or a word you've heard otherwise, through His Word... It shapes your life so much so that when you traffic in the world, there is something that comes out of you that causes other people to give praise and notice to God Himself. Transformative. And you'll notice mentioned twice, not only here, but earlier in verse 15. It talks about being thankful. It talks about being, having gratitude in your hearts. And that's self-explanatory. Not often exemplary in our lives, but here's the question. Is there a growing sense of gratitude in your heart or complaint? Okay? And then let's wrap it up. Verse 17, great verse. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all. Comprehensive, every arena of your life, every interaction, every relationship, every decision, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Here's the final question. Is the goal of your life consistently to reflect the beauty and character of Christ in all that you do and are? Now, ten questions. You would evaluate yourself on a scale of one to ten. One being work to do. Ten being nailed it. Where would you be on the spectrum if you go back to these ten questions? I nobody would be raising their hand. Yep, nailing that one. But hopefully you're not over here. Hopefully you're moving towards that, right? And that's the challenge. This isn't about you measuring up and not measuring up. No, that's legalism. This is about saying, that's what I want. That's what I long for. And that's what I hope other people see in me. Christ becoming my life, the radiance and beauty of all that he is. That's our witness. I have, uh, we have 12 grandchildren. I'm sure Pastor Keith never talks about his grandchildren. And I don't, uh, I, I try to be careful when I use them for illustrations, but this one uh, is so pertinent to the message, I, I have to use it. I'm a, Baseball fixiano. I love the game of baseball. I've been to 26 different ballparks. and I grew up a Yankee fan, but moving to Boston, 
I, again, there was a transformation. Um, and uh, we actually lived in an apartment that was about 15, 20 minutes away from Fenway. And of all the ballparks I've ever been in, Fenway, there's just none like it. You can smell baseball there, the history of it. Uh, I have a grandson. He's he was turned 16 this June. He loves the game of baseball. He's good, good ball player. But he had never been to see the Red Sox. And I, this is about four years ago. I said, how would you like to go to Fenway and see the Red Sox? He loved Big Poppy, loved watching him play. And I said, hey, come on up. We'll go to the game. And in, in the right field stands, just on the other side of the, 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 the bullpen, there's some great seats. In fact, it's a great place to sit if Big Poppy ever hit one out. I got a seat right there. I was so excited. We got the ballpark early. He went over to where the bullpen was in. A pitcher tossed him a ball. Oh my God, this is good. I'm getting some big granddad points right now. I was just excited about the whole experience. We were watching the game, and we had a couple of seats empty next to us, and that just means somebody's going to get to the game late because there's rarely an empty seat at Fenway. About the second, third inning, a couple of guys started walking up the aisle, and it was obvious they'd been drinking, and, and it, you know, that just heavy language. Guess where they sit? Right next to us. And my grandson, not ever have been to Boston or been in that kind of a, a necessarily a scenario. Uh, we just, you know, we planned it easy, and then one of the guys started engaging with my grandson and got loud. And I could tell my grandson was just kind of, you know, withdrawing. And so I told the guy, I said, hey, man, thanks. Let's enjoy the game. How about that? And he was good for a few minutes, and they started again. And so I said, hey, look, I think we're good. Going to enjoy the ball game. How about you let us do the same? Well, that set him off. And he stood up, and he started getting in my face. My grandson Began, you could tell he was very fearful of what was about to happen. About that time, fortunately, one of the ushers noticed what was going on. And they saw what the situation was. And they ushered the two guys out. Because everybody else had noticed it as well. I was relieved. My grandson, though, was ruined. He said, hey, let's go. On we go. I said, we're all right. We're okay, man. It's all taken care of. He said, yeah. I just don't want anything to happen to you. So, fourth inning, we left the game. We stopped by the gift shop. I thought that would help. We were gone. We were going back out of the, uh, out of the stadium and walking over towards the commons, beating up with my, my wife and uh, our other granddaughter. Seventh inning, Big Poppy hit a home run right where we would have been sitting. I was furious. I was absolutely furious. I wanted to find those guys. Not that I could have done anything about it, but I could have pretended. And I told my wife, I said, I cannot believe this happened. 
And in true Gail fashion, if you knew my wife, you, you would know this and show so many wonderful things about her. And we'll have our challenges for sure. I'm covered, by the way, for tomorrow. But um, <laughs> she told me, she said, you know what? We just really need to pray for those guys. Pray for them. You want to pray for them? They ruined the whole deal. And then in her subtle way, without saying these exact words, she got sent this message. Hey, David. We're living in Boston on mission. If you can't love those guys in Jesus' name, then we don't need to be here. Okay. Let's pray for them. Good. Do you, do you get the message? If Jesus isn't becoming our life and being released through our life, we can't live on mission. It starts there, out of the overflow. Question. Nope, no more questions. Final challenge. Would you take these questions to heart and would you put them before the Lord and say, God, it is the desire of my heart to see that gap closed. Open my eyes, change my heart, and by your grace and by your power, would you make this a reality in my life? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the way you use Paul in this ancient letter just to speak through him powerful words that we need today. A fresh reminder. Our lives are not our own. It's not enough to check the box, going to heaven, have Jesus in my heart. No, it's about your very Son becoming our life by the power of your Holy Spirit, your love being spread abroad in our heart and unleashed through us in all the ways we looked at today. Father, as we go back into our neighborhoods, go back into our homes, go back into our places of work, Take a step out to live on mission in some place, in some area, some arena in our region, in our city, in our state, in our nation, in Boston, in Nashville, maybe overseas. Father, may we know that unless Jesus has become our life, we'll be a danger to the mission. In fact, we can't live on mission without this happening. Thank you. Thank you that you're at work in us, transforming us, closing the gap. We trust you and lean into you in Jesus' name.